Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Hello, welcome to Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. I'm your host, Nikki Eisenhower, life coach and psychotherapist. And on today's episode, I'm discussing a story that I call the tissue box. Hello, y'all. Now I'm going to take you on a journey with this one. So hang in there. I want to talk to y'all more about critical thinking and the decisions that we face every single day in our lives. My counseling program had a lot of nuance. And one of my fears is that I think this nuance is being lost in colleges right now and maybe for the last 10 years or so. And it's permeating Western society. I'm going to share a story, a profound one in my personal and professional development uh, a little later in the episode. College challenged my thinking, challenged me. It taught me to critically think. It taught me what a good debate, a good argument was and what a good argument wasn't. My college experience was a taught anti-victim mentality. We were not allowed to show up as the victim. I was taught to endure, and I mean endure and work through offense. I was taught that we had to come together in different classrooms and different collaborations and different personalities. We had to come together and we had to work it out through difference because that was being successful in the world, having to work with others and learning how to work together despite discomfort, despite difference despite butting heads sometimes, my comfort level was not a factor in either of my degrees. It just wasn't part of my college education. My concern and what I'm observing is what I believe to be a very well-intentioned attempt to care about comfort and feelings through the college experience But this is a pendulum that swung because in my time, I finally finished with college in 2006, so a while ago, but not that long ago, I found that my college had an, and I'm going to call it a, a pride in dismissing feelings, having a hard ass, black and white, all or nothing, no wiggle room way of being, giving almost no accommodations. That pendulum has swung from that hard-edged line that I did think was too far and too hard a lot of the time, but that pendulum has swung way to the other side, to giving way too much power to feelings, to emotion, emotion that is transient and there to work through, not to act from, too much power to comfort. And shoving this idea of discomfort 
under the category of trauma in ways that I fundamentally disagree with as a human being, as a trauma survivor, as a trauma therapist. My college experience forced me to use my mind to figure things out that felt impossible to figure out, like coordinating school with an unpaid internship and a paid job, which taught me that I could face what seemed impossible and that I could get through. And this is how resiliency develops in all the ways that life challenges us to show up and do what seems, and certainly, especially to a highly sensitive person, feels impossible. And I am so sorry, but comfort does not teach resiliency. It doesn't mean that I'm advocating for horrible experiences. I'm just trying to acknowledge the dilemma in our society growing towards wanting and attempting to truly deliver more safety and more comfort when discomfort is taught to be traumatic. The individual and the, then the population starts to shift into seeing each normal, uncomfortable, natural human experience to feel increasingly delicate, put upon, offensible, even the big word traumatized, and the entitlement to not be uncomfortable just grows and grows and grows and grows. As I am an expert in these things, I'm kind of here to say growth is painful. And no matter how much you don't want that to be true or you don't like that, or your thoughts and feelings might be telling you in a moment of hearing this truth that growth is painful. You might want to resist that and make it wrong and make it untrue. It is true. Growth is painful. It's why we have phrases like growing pains. A good, solid, grounded, available, aware, nurturing parent knows that as their kid grows, their bones, their muscles, they hurt. Those muscles, those bones, that body is stretching. It's changing shape. It's leaving that baby body behind that we once all had. That is the evolution of the body naturally. And it is a painful one. It is a healthy discomfort. To not endure this discomfort would mean your body not growing into its adult form, not growing into its mature nature. Are we growing people into emotional maturation with these newer safety, comfort, and fairness messages that are now the norm and now expected? Recently, I've had the pleasure of having the experience of working with a handful of people in their 20s and have them leave the United States and spend a significant time in various other countries. Now, I'm not talking about the UK and I'm not talking about Australia. I'm talking about other various parts of the world, not so westernized yet. And across the board, the summary of the messages that they are sharing with me through their experience is that, it, is that it's, it's a breath of fresh air. 
to be surrounded by people in a culture who don't have the expectation to not be offended or don't have the expectation to be accommodated. These young people have shared with me that it feels better. It feels lighter. It feels more human. It feels more real. It feels lighter. It feels more connected. And it's helping them find satisfaction and normalization in the wonkiness, the way we irritate each other as human beings because of our differences versus chasing down some kind of ideal that they've been taught as a righteous entitlement. I'm witnessing these young people feel less depressed and feel more peace in themselves, in humanity, in hopes in their future and the world's future. They're even reporting more ease in being able to trust in relationships and if somebody hurts their feelings to flow and roll with that. Whereas once they may have felt deeply wounded, even using the big T word traumatized, because there is more blunt truth than walking on eggshells, than fake nicey-nicey because society demands something. These young people are experiencing, and experience is our greatest teacher. The flaws of our American safetyism in real time. And it feels different to be in this time of safetyism. Now, any true narcissistic human being tends to compel a constant message of not good enough to the people in their world, particularly their children. And anyone who was raised by a narcissist or has spent or has spent significant time partnered with or working under a narcissist knows knows this as much as knowing the sky is blue. That for a narcissist, nothing is ever good enough. I often say narcissists are victim of everything and responsible for nothing. In our Western culture, are we growing a societal personality disorder like narcissism and hiding it under descriptors like progress, fairness, comfort, while beating the drum of a message of never good enough? Are we giving our young people and all of us Permission to find it good enough. What amount in a paycheck is good enough? What is the benchmark of good enough when it comes to mental health stigma? Because now, different than 17 years ago when I started as a counselor, I see people making mental illness their identity with pride. And to me, that is too far. What is a good enough level of female empowerment? I feel like I have every right and every choice I could possibly have. I can't think of a right that a man has that I don't have in 2023. At what point do we start teaching a good enough? Even while we want things to be better, we can always be working towards our utopia. While learning how to practice a good enough for the sake of satisfaction and good mental health. What is progressive enough? What is compassionate enough? What is safe enough? 
what is researched enough? What is inclusive enough? What is enough help? And when does that help become enabling? Enoughness is an important psychological consideration for human satisfaction and peace and anti-insanity and anti-exhaustion. Anyone I've ever worked with who had a narcissistic dynamic in their parenting or has worked very hard on their own and with me together to work towards internalizing enoughness because that enoughness brings peace. It brings calm. It brings sanity. It is anti-anxiety. It is exhausting. And I mean exhausting on a soul level to feel as if nothing around us, nothing we do, nothing we learn, nothing we feel, nothing, 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 nothing is good enough. So if we aren't open to finding and defining an enoughness for ourselves as an individual, how do we avoid the trap of desperation and depression that flows from the perfectionism of never good enough? How do we manage this individually and as a society? I want to share this story as an example of the nuance that I think is being missed, lost, looked over in much modern messaging from politics, from media, from colleges, from most of society now. I wouldn't care about anything that was going on in society if I didn't think it was deeply impacting the psychology of the individual and then the psychology, the mental health of our entire human tribe. Some of you might go, why is she sharing this story after you hear this story? I hope you can connect with the nuance that I'm trying to offer here about how delicate it is to relate to each other, how delicate and yet how powerful. And we have to find ways to move through all of these things in this world, making the very best decisions we can for ourselves from gut, from mind, from heart. Here's the story of the tissue box. I was taught by a few professors, not just one, many professors, that if a client was emotional, was crying in front of me as the therapist or counselor, that I was not to hand a tissue or a tissue box to that client ever. It shocked me. The idea is that if I hand that tissue to the client, I am robbing them of the empowered action in a moment of their pain for them to enact themselves, their choices by reaching for that tissue or asking for a tissue, a simple step to empowerment, to forward motion, to resiliency, despite being in that moment of pain, that if I were to, of my own volition, feel that desire to hand that tissue to the client. It was a way for me to position myself as their savior in that moment and inadvertently create a subconscious expectation within that client that they must need someone other than themselves outside of themselves to serve them, to help them for them to be okay, that the okayness actually came from me instead of it coming from themselves. A simple tissue, simply handing it actionably, a subconscious encouragement of a codependent relationship. That's what I was taught. 
If I were to hand them that tissue, would I even be handing them that tissue for them or for me to be able to do something in the moment of sitting with another human being's discomfort and tears and emotion? So would I even be attempting to help my client or would I be attending to my own discomfort and wanting to be the tear dryer, the helper of the client instead of letting that moment be fully about them? All the stereotypes of therapists overthinking and picking everything apart are real, y'all, because this is how they teach us. And I appreciate this nuance. Many therapists, many of us, spend 10 or 20 years after college deprogramming this overthinking overanalysis into just thinking and analysis. Way back then, I had an intuitive gut response to this teaching that took me years to interpret and figure out for my own mind and my own heart. A part of me very much agreed with this way of thinking. This logic holds up and it still holds up to me today. That the tissue box delivery was a way to potentially foster some codependency, to encourage, draw out a state of upset, to reinforce it, in fact. As the client reached or asked for what they needed, if they chose to reach for that Kleenex, can you hand me the tissues? They would be in an action, in a moment of self-empowerment through their pain, getting to the other side, taking a step forward in their process, reaching, stretching into resiliency to meet their own needs, a small subconscious thing that we could hope as the therapist would grow like a seed into bigger and better empowered action over time. I could get behind that idea that to hand them the tissue really was codependent no matter how well-intentioned. And I didn't ever want to rob or steal that potential moment of empowerment from someone who was sitting in the chair across from me in that vulnerable position of the therapy client. So I understood and agreed and I also didn't understand and didn't agree. My gut didn't like it, but I didn't know why, because my head could make sense of it in the way I just shared. And this stuck with me, this teaching. I dreamed about it the first few years I was a counselor. I held it. I spent years as a newbie therapist rolling it around in my head, trying to interpret the disruption I felt in my gut about it. I didn't for years hand the client the tissue. Until one day when I had an extremely beaten down and weary soul in front of me. And as he cried, I saw him as a little boy. His parents had been addicted in and out of prison. His bed at five and for years had been bricks of drugs stacked in the shape of a small bed in a drug house. He'd been sexually trafficked by his own parents, beaten and sometimes starved. It was a miracle this person was alive in front of me. And as I watched him cry, I wondered if he had ever, ever, one time in his life, had someone attend to what he needed, especially while he was vulnerable and crying. My gut answered that it didn't think so. And so without even thinking in my mind, because it wasn't from my mind, it was from my heart and from my gut, from my spirit. I saw myself, my body, pick up the tissue box and just lean it towards him in the offer of a tissue. And I caught the little boy in him, his inner child, 
through his weepy eyes, connect with mine in that moment as his grown man self wept and received that tissue from me. And an energy sparked between us and my gut released on this teaching. Later that day, pondering that moment, because that was a big moment for me choosing to break the rules. It was me stepping outside of my good girl, my people pleaser. I sat with what it meant that I broke that rule. And I understood. After that moment, sometimes I would give the tissue and sometimes I wouldn't. I still agree with the original teaching of the tissue box. The problem with what I was taught, the lesson of never giving a tissue, is that it missed the human condition. It missed that trauma drags, kicks, pushes us out of center, out and away from our basic humanity of give and take, of share, receive, hold each other, see each other, help each other. Humans are not supposed to be hyper-independent. We were all made to be tribal, to be familial, to need each other, to benefit from the relationships of each other psychologically, emotionally, and physically. No one gets through this life, even the biggest loners, without other people, without help, without interaction, without relationships, and without showing our vulnerability. We must do a lot for ourselves, and we also must utilize the tribe. We need touch, we need care, we need to be seen, and we need an outstretched hand to help us stand up and start the journey forward sometimes. Some people in life are handed almost every single life tissue, and they don't learn when or how or that they can reach for their own damn tissue. I don't hand the tissue to those types in respect of their experience and in holding space for helping them get to the next level of their lives so that somebody in their life cannot hand them that tissue so they can learn how. Some people in life had to become so hyper-independent because the tribe members they were born into were hurt so badly or so lost that they didn't know how to give, how to support, how to be reciprocal, how to help, how to love, how to nurture, how to show up. These types often don't know how to receive love, compassion, care, or help. They don't know how to even feel worthy of being seen, of being helped, of being held, or even considered because their worth is so wounded. When I handed that client the tissue box that day, I set something in motion. Or maybe I'm wrong and some force greater than me and greater than he set something in motion much longer ago than that. But when I handed that tissue, I sparked, I saw a flash. It was a spiritual moment. He needed to receive it to be seen. And that little act of my reaching toward him with that tissue box was an act of love, of respect, of care, of I see you, of you don't have to do it all alone. People can and will help you. The life lesson he could not have learned from his childhood experience And if he was to heal, where was he going to get those kinds of human experiences, if not in an office with me or someone like me, someone willing? He needed to learn in this lifetime and more than learn, allow others to care for him. I loved him long before I was comfortable and acknowledging and breaking that role and letting my clients know that I had love for them. 
Now, this man would not follow our treatment plan. He would not follow therapeutic advice and continued making very poor decisions. I was even called and on the phone with him and the police as he was threatening to hurt or kill himself. And I talked him down for an exceptionally long 15 minutes till I heard the police forcibly enter the apartment and help him. I eventually had to fire him as a client, forced to by the bigger treatment team I was working for at the time, and it haunted me. That tissue teaching also missed that human beings cannot be broken down into measurable and specific testable components that can be truly helped and healed in mind, heart, and body through testable, provable, evidence-based science. Because we in the universe, we are so much more than we will ever know. More than many want to know or will ever allow themselves to feel. A year after firing this sweet, wounded man who had once been that precious and sweet little boy sleeping on a bed made of drugs, he sent me a letter. And it was in my work mailbox. And I received his letter the day of or the day after. I can't remember because it feels like one big double long day of my life. Because I had received the news that day that another client of mine, who had been like the dad in treatment, had shot himself in the chest and died. He was definitely highly sensitive, and yes, he shot himself in the heart. And later I'd find out that he had not relapsed, and he had been sober. He had been a higher-ranking officer in Vietnam who lost almost all of his men, and yet he survived. He was a man who was spit on by Americans as he came home from the war. I had worked with his family, and I was terrified that they would blame me. I was terrified I was not good enough as a counselor on top of my grief for him and my grief for the people that I knew who loved him. I read that letter from that former fired client. He was stable. He was apologetic to me and thankful. He told me he had finally read all the books that I had tried so hard to get him to read and he wouldn't in our time together. He was safe. He was getting better. And he wanted me to know that I was good at helping people. I think it was a way for him to hand me a tissue right when I needed it. If energy sounds woo-woo to you, if you want all of your emotional, mental, and physical healing to be scientifically proven, to be evidence-based, to be proven techniques, how do you make sense of the story I just shared? I could not have explained to my professors or counseling supervisor at the time in any evidence-based way that they would have okayed. Science is extremely limited on energy, on intuition, on the nuance of the human experience and spirit. I was utterly unprepared for my client's family members showing up to my work in their grief with an intention of letting me know that his suicide was not my fault. And they thanked me. They thanked me and acknowledged that the 70 days of sobriety he had had working with me had been the happiest, most peaceful they had ever seen in their brother, their brother-in-law, even their ex-husband. I knew his ex-wife. And they believed he had an impulsive and tragic moment, and that was all. Counseling, psychology, mental health has tried so hard to qualify and quantify the human condition. 
has tried to define and test our humanity, but we are so much more than the sum of these testable parts. So very often in our human condition, our intentions are very good and towards the light. That's what all of science started out as. But what happens to what we can't prove, what we can't know, what isn't testable? Do you really believe I received that letter from my former fired client in the same moments I received a suicide confirmation of another? We heal on the individual and collective levels when we respect science, but we don't let science limit our humanity. We are so much more than we can or ever will understand. Part of why I'm here on this microphone is because I am committed to myself and then to you to work through messaging, to understand the messages that are programming us in this modern life every single day. From the intentionally manipulative ones to the well-intended, like my professor's teaching of the tissue. We grow when we examine, when we give ourselves permission to come to our own conclusions, to look at things differently, not obsessively, not till our heads hurt, not till we're confused, but to question is good. And when something feels wrong or iffy or weird or strange, or you don't even know how to define it in your gut, in your heart, I want to encourage you to trust that feeling, even if it takes you a very long time to interpret it. I know that many of you feel that disparity in your intuitive centers when you hear messaging that isn't quite right, but you can't even put your finger on what's not right about it. Stay with it and you will find more and more and more of the truth. There's a teaching in yoga that indicates we lift the veils of disillusionment one at a time, piece by piece by piece. And each time we do, we see more, we see more and we see more. Clarity has brought me peace and has brought me to knowing myself. And I love my life. I want peace, satisfaction, joy, love in this life as much as we can muster for anybody else who wants that too. That's who and what this show is for. Thank you for giving me space to help all of us extend love, compassion, and healthiness, what that really, really, truly means. I don't know that life has ever been easy for anybody in any time period. I don't think it's about easy. Remember those growing pains and remember that you were made to grow. If you would like to take this episode further, here are some journal prompts that will be available for you on Patreon, who, by the way, has a brand new feature where you can try out our Patreon for a week totally for free and hang out there, see what's going on. Here are the journal prompts and questions for you to play with. We'll have a discussion at patreon.com backslash emotional badass. After hearing today's episode, where in your life would it benefit you to reach for your own tissue? What does that question mean to you? Take it where you need to take it. Where in your life would it benefit you to accept the tissue someone is reaching out to hand you? 
If you have a pattern of avoiding what's hard, is that helping move you forward or keeping you stuck? Do you let feelings like anxiety make decisions for your life? How do you balance asking for accommodations and pushing your sleeves up to do what needs doing if accommodations are unavailable? Do you want accommodation or do you need an accommodation? And what is the difference? Does this serve or impede you over the long haul of a life? If you are not satisfied with your life, what are you waiting for? And will you lean in to change? Another way that we so appreciate how y'all support this show is by working that funky iTunes algorithm. When you take your precious time to write a five-star review on iTunes or other platforms, it works all those weird algorithms to help more and more and more people get emotional badass suggested to them in their feeds. The more that y'all write reviews for the show and share the show, the more this crazy way the internet works connects other people. It is one of the blessings of my life that we get messages all the time about people realizing that they are highly sensitive, that they are not crazy, that there are other people on this planet that think and feel and are seeking a beautiful, one precious life, light and love. Write those five-star reviews and I will read them on the show. Take care of yourselves. I'm an emotional badass. You're an emotional badass. And together we are where Moxie meets Mindful. See you right here next time for a brand new episode. Bye-bye. 